Please turn in your Bibles with me, or scroll in your Bibles with me, to 1 Peter chapter 4. We've gone through the book of 1 Peter at a relatively brisk pace over the last 10 weeks, and we come now to the end. We come to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and we'll be reading through the end of the book together. And here we see Peter writes his final challenges to those Christians in Asia Minor who are living in a world that is hostile to the Christian way of life. And these are the things he leaves them with. So hear now God's word through 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist Him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. 
the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Peter is writing to these Christians in Asia Minor, encouraging them to endure sufferings for the name of Jesus Christ. And in typical first century letter format, he wraps up the body of the letter and then moves into his final challenges. And so if you look at verse 11 from last week, he wraps up with a doxology and an amen, closing the the body of the letter. And now he begins the final challenges in verse 12 with a new address to the beloved. And in typical first century letter form, he also closes with some final greetings. He, He sends the greetings through Silvanus, who may have been the scribe. He may have been the guy who delivered the letter. And also, greetings from she who is at Babylon. Now, it's interesting that Babylon as a city was in ruins at this time. It was rubble. So Babylon was a reference to Rome. And she who is at Babylon is the church in Rome. The church in Rome sends you greetings. She also is elect. And also, Mark, whom Peter calls my son, that is his son in the gospel, Mark also sends greetings. And Mark is the one, John Mark, through whom Peter had told the stories of Jesus uh, and had written down these accounts, according to Peter, as in the book that we know as the gospel according to Mark. We come now to the end of this Mark and 1 Peter series of, of gospel and theology that we began over 18 months ago, and I pray that it encourages us to do exactly what Peter has been charging the Christians in Asia Minor to do, to stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm in the true grace of God. And he gives us four ways to do this. First, he says, as sojourners, here's how you suffer. It's the first topic. That's the first challenge. As sojourners, here's how you suffer. Second, as sojourners, here's how the church is led. Third, as sojourners, here's how you resist the adversary. And fourth, as sojourners, stand firm. So let's look at his first challenge. As sojourners, here's how you suffer. This comes from verses 12 through 19 of chapter 4. And he calls these fiery trials that the Christians are going to endure. And he says, these fiery trials are not strange. Well, you and I, when we think of the comfort that we like to live in, we think that the charge that he just gave is strange because we think fiery trials are different. They're out of place. But this word strange, Peter says, is It doesn't mean weird, it means foreign. The fiery trial is not foreign to Christians. We shouldn't think of it as improper or out of place. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. It's proper, it's expected, it's a part of what comes with following Christ. And you'll remember in the Gospel of Mark how Jesus won the victory over his enemy, over sin and over death, not by raising up earthly power, but by suffering. And so salvation comes through suffering. The way down is the way up. And we share Christ's sufferings. Believers share Christ's sufferings. Peter's saying to those Christians, you share Christ's sufferings. Not in a way that you're adding to Jesus' sufferings, because what Jesus did on the cross was enough. His sacrifice was once and for all. But we do share in Christ's sufferings in a very real sense. And we must be clear that Jesus alone has accomplished salvation. His life and his death and his resurrection have once and for all paid the penalty for sin for every single person who believes in him. 
and there is nothing we contribute to our salvation. As we quoted last Sunday evening from Jonathan Edwards, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And so when we suffer with Christ, we're not contributing to our salvation, but we're living out of our salvation that Christ has earned for us. And without trust in Jesus, we're stuck in our sins, and we await only judgment for our sins, as Peter will talk about shortly. But for those who are in Christ, this is the gospel, that we find freedom from our sin in Jesus Christ. Sin no longer has a hold on us, and it no longer mars our record, and it no longer determines our future. We receive the gift of life from the perfect suffering servant, Jesus. But Christians who have leaned upon Jesus and who have put their faith in him have the honor of sharing in Christ's sufferings after receiving that life from him. And Peter says to rejoice in so far as you share in his sufferings. And we have covered this at more length earlier as Peter brought this up, but a few things I would like for us to look at in these verses Rejoicing is not a forced emotion. Like when you were a kid and you were told, you're going to eat your food with a smile and you're going to like it. That's not what Peter's saying. You're going to endure these trials with a smile and you're going to rejoice. That's not what's going on. He's giving them a real powerful way to rejoice in suffering. And there are three things he says. First of all, you rejoice by considering that coming joy and that coming gladness that we will have in Christ's glory. Because if we suffer with him now, we will be raised with him in glory. So consider that joy and gladness that's coming in Christ's glory. Second, reflect on Jesus' own sufferings for you as we just discussed. What he has done is enough. Once and for all, your sins are paid for. Rejoice, reflect on that and that gives you joy in the face of sorrow. And then third, tells us in verse 14, we have the Spirit who rests upon us. And it is the presence of the Spirit that comforts us and that gives us strength. And as we're told in the New Testament, the Spirit who gave words to speak even at the time of being killed. Very, three very real ways that rejoicing can dominate our hearts when we suffer. And so Peter says, rejoice! You're sharing Christ's sufferings as a pledge that you are united to Christ and that you belong to him. And in that union, we anticipate that joy and gladness that's coming. And he says, this is how you suffer as a Christian. Now, you and I hear the word Christian and think nothing of it. But this word Christian was rarely used in the New Testament. Only later did it come into use. And it's used, I think, three times in the New Testament. And here's one of them. And it just means a follower of Christ. But it was a derogatory term. So it would be like somebody uh, saying, well, don't be surprised if people come up to you and call you a Jesus freak. It's a derogatory term. People looking down, he's saying you're crazy for believing all this. But he says, this is what you do suffer for. This is what we are called to suffer for. It's for being a Christian and the world's going to scorn us for it and revile us for it. But don't be ashamed because there's great honor in being associated with the sufferings of Christ. And he says specifically, do not suffer for doing evil because there is shame in suffering for evil doing. And he lists murder and theft, which were specifically uh, given the death penalty in those days. And he also says, don't suffer for meddling, which probably is referring to Christians who are overzealous and cause problems for other, other people. 
That is not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about suffering according to the will of God. Don't go out of your way to seek trouble. But when you do suffer, because you are being a faithful follower of Christ, don't be ashamed. Glorify God while you endure it. It's not foreign for us. It fits. It's to be expected. It's exactly what we anticipate because it's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Peter moves quickly into verse 17 with what seems to be a change of topic. He starts talking about judgment. So how do you move from suffering into judgment? Well, um, what he's saying is judgment is beginning at the household of God. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And you'll remember earlier, Peter has called Christians the household of God. So he's saying the judgment is beginning now with Christians. It's beginning with you. Ed Clowney um, says this on these verses. He says, The flames of persecution, therefore, are a token to Christians of the faithfulness of God who will deliver them from the wrath to come. Rejoice in the evidence that the Holy One has taken up His dwelling with His people. What this is getting at is that the suffering that we endure as Christians is at least a foreshadow of the purification we will receive at judgment. It is also a guarantee of the, pers- of the, the purification that God is working in us and will continue to work. Because judgment actually has two different meanings to it. Uh, this is a reference to Malachi 3 where God appears with the refiner's fire like fuller's soap and he's going to sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he'll purify who? Well, we think that he's going to bring judgment and fire and all that against the wicked, but it says here he's going to purify the sons of Levi and refine them like silver and gold. This is God purifying and refining Christians. So God in his judgment is burning up wickedness. For Christians, the wickedness that is burned up out of us is one of purification because we are composed of the righteousness of Christ. And so that wickedness that is burned off does not consume us. But Peter does fear for those who are not in Christ, because they are not composed of the righteousness of Christ. They are not silver and gold that are going to be purified through judgment and through persecution and like through fire. They are those who will be consumed by God's judgment and by that fire that comes on that last day. And Peter says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what about those who do not obey the gospel? And this is not saying that the righteous will barely be saved as if Jesus' blood is only going to barely get us into heaven. This, This word really means more so. Other translations put it this way. If the righteous is saved through difficulty, if it's trial and hardship that believers are saved through, what about those who don't believe? They're not being purified through their trials. You know the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's only true for Christians. For everyone else. There is no hope that you will be saved through the trials. But for Christians, we have that promise that we are being purified, that we are headed to a judgment that will ultimately purify us and we will stand because we will be upheld by Jesus Christ. And so what does Peter say to do? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, he's speaking to the Christians, therefore, Christians, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do good. Live 
faithfully. Live out of the salvation you have in Christ and entrust your soul to a faithful God. The only way to endure judgment. And therefore, the only way to endure persecution today is to trust. Trust what? Jesus. His purity and his righteousness and his perfect strength under the weight of God's judgment because he paid for every ounce of impurity in your composition of gold. And he is faithful to remove the impurities throughout your life, especially through trials and sufferings. And although suffering doesn't bring what the world calls happy feelings or so-called good vibes, we who have the mind of Christ know that suffering is good and it purifies us. And it draws us closer and closer to that day when we are made perfect. And so we are encouraged. And so we rejoice. Even when things are hard. He's creator. He is faithful. He's the keeper of souls. He knows his plan for your sanctification. And thus for your persecution and suffering. And he knows the plan for judgment. Trust him. He is trustworthy. So as a sojourner, this is how you suffer by entrusting your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. That's Peter's first challenge. Second, he says, as sojourners, here's how the church is led. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. He's moving now to focus in on the church because he realizes Christians exist in a hostile world. But the church is that place of life that Christ set up for us. So he's turning his focus now inward to the believers relating to one another in the body of Christ. And he says, Christians, no matter your role in the church, you are to be related to others in the church by humility. This, this theme that he's been going through throughout the book, by mutual service, by denial of self. He's told the Christians to submit to the government in chapter 2. He told slaves to submit to masters in chapter 2. Wives to submit to husbands in chapter 3. Husbands to respect wives in chapter 3. Christians to speak about hope to unbelievers with gentleness and respect in chapter 3. And he says all powers and authorities will be submitted to Jesus in chapter 3. And now he turns to the shepherds in the church in chapter 5. And to the sheep that are in the church. And he speaks of their interactions with one another in the same terms, mutual service. Humility. And so he first turns to the shepherds and says, All right, shepherds, here's how you interact toward the sheep. I really like this quote also from, uh, from uh, Pastor Reverend Clowney. He says, Elder shepherds, the, 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 the men who oversee the spiritual well being of the church and the direction of the church, elder shepherds are not cowboys driving their flocks like cattle. They lead them as a shepherd would, walking on ahead. It's a gentleness and there's a withness. The elders are leading to Christ. And Peter says to exercise oversight. He says not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. That is, according to how God has interacted with his people. That is, you, you serve them rooted in grace. Rooted in God's love for his people. You, because you have been loved, now you can love. And so the leaders of the church, it might be tempting to ignore caring for some, you know, the difficult sheep. I'm not talking about you, of course. Or to disregard the office altogether. There's temptation to serve under compulsion, but Peter says do it willingly. Because the elders and the shepherds are to oversee or guard the sheep willingly. 
and they're not to do it for shameful gain. This is uh, contrasted specifically with the bad shepherds of the Old Testament Israel. The bad shepherds who would consume the sheep. They've been feeding themselves on the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. They've been seeking self-promotion through the church. That is a grave evil. And it is one that every elder, myself included, must pray to be protected from. And congregation, the shepherds need your prayers to that end. That they would be kept from temptation toward shameful gain. And Peter tells them, do not domineer over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. You're not here to tell them to go, but to lead them where they ought to go. And he speaks specifically to those who are in their charge, those in your charge. This is uh, literally talking about a specific lot that is assigned to the elders. And this is one of many reasons why we believe membership is important. That way the elder knows who to be caring for. And the way it's set up in um, certain circles of our uh, Presbyterian, our PCA polity, is that elders are, are assigned specific families and individuals within the church to check in on and to care for. And I've been personally very encouraged by that, having elders check in with me, care for me, ask how I'm doing, show me by example, and not for shameful gain, but willingly to lead me to Christ. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. To whom? To the very one who's writing this letter. To the very one who found forgiveness despite his shortcomings, because there is no perfect elder. And Peter even says, I'm a fellow elder. But he also distinguishes saying, I have seen the resurrection of Christ. So the elders in the church are not fellow apostles. They are fellow shepherds. And if you say, yeah, but isn't Jesus the shepherd? That is absolutely the right question. Because these, these shepherds, these elders, are under shepherds. There is one king and head of the church, and it's Jesus Christ alone. And he has given authority to oversee and to govern the church to the elders. And they therefore serve under Jesus for his glory, because Jesus alone is the good shepherd, as he calls himself in John 10. And he will appear, Peter tells us here. The good shepherd, the chief shepherd will appear and the elders will receive a crown of glory for faithful shepherding that they will cast before Jesus, as in Revelation 4, which also implies that there will be a reckoning. They will have to give account for how they shepherded those in their lot because Jesus will return as judge. He is the only head of the church and all authority has been established by him and for him. Let's look specifically at what it means for them to be an example to the flock. Well, how is Jesus an example to the flock? He washed feet. He refused to use political or military power to build himself up in the eyes of his enemies. Jesus submitted to the Father's will, so the elders are to be those who submit to the Father's will, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. The elders are to be those that we see running first to the cross with their failures, seeking forgiveness from the good shepherd. Elders are those who we see as faithful and diligent and steadfast, not perfect, 
yet, meeting that list of qualifications in Paul's letters. Above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, managing his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, not a recent convert, and well thought of by outsiders. You read that and say, well, I am out. There's no way. Welcome to the club. It is Jesus' authority and his call that makes one able not to do this perfectly, but to run to the cross regularly. Can a member of the church look at an elder and accurately say, I want to be like that because he's like Jesus? That is what Peter is telling the elders to be like. And that's the kind of elder leadership that the church needs. Not domineering or power-hungry people, especially a church composed of suffering Christians. that needs a place of welcome and a place of warmth and of gospel love. Then he turns to those under the shepherd's care and says, well, younger ones, here's how you live in humility toward the elders. And the younger ones could refer to a few things. It could be uh, all adults who are younger in the faith. It could refer to young men in particular, or it could be a group of young people who are prone to rebellion, and there are historical arguments for any of these interpretations. But the point is, is this, especially when you consider the role of the elder shepherd from other New Testament passages, it's that the shepherds of the church are to lead with humility, and those under their care are to be subject to them with humility. And Peter uses that language in in verse 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Because again, that's how Christians relate to one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's speaking a quote from Proverbs 3 here to drive home this point that we we live out of humility. A humility toward one another that is rooted in humility to God. And so we as a church plant, Let's think about this. You know, our elders are temporary elders. They are, um, call it a provisional session, leadership of elders who uh, are not here today because they're with their, their flock uh, doing these tasks. They are in Hudson at our mother church. But we are headed, Lord willing, to a time when we have our own elders. And we as a congregation need to make sure that we're not rushing into getting our own leaders so that we can be independent. It's a high calling for elders, for men who truly lead with humility. Sadly, some of us have witnessed church leadership without humility, and it's led to grave brokenness. But we, as a plant right now, we have men who are observing elder training. We're headed that direction. We're thinking about it. We're praying about it. And my charge to you as the people of Christ prays is to be diligent in discerning a man's qualification for elder. We need men who meet these qualifications. And it's, it's not just a privilege, but it's a duty to elect qualified men. And it takes diligence in getting to know them, getting to know their work, getting to know their wives and their children. And to find men who will do what Peter is telling the elders here to do as a sojourner, 
The church is to be led in humility. In humility. Peter moves now in uh, verse 6 to talk about resisting the adversary. He's talked about humility to one another, and he roots that now in verse 6 in humility to God. Our relationship toward our God is to be one of humility. James chapter 4 says this similarly, quoting a similar verse, uh, the same verse, excuse me. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen to this verse. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When Satan tempts you, he wants you to humble yourself to him. He's trying to overpower you, and he's trying to overpower Christ's rule in your life, but the command is to resist him and to humble yourself to God. Because God has a mighty hand. He is mighty, and he will exalt you. Therefore, there's no better ruler to be humble under. But we also see in these verses, he is a compassionate God with a compassionate heart Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He invites you to cast all your worries and your fears onto him. There's no better one to pour out your heart and your anxieties to. He cares for you. The world may promise to care for you, but it wants to devour you. So he turns the perspective to the world specifically to the evil one who is driving the passions of the world. And so when we think about what's going on in Satan's work, we ought to think resistance. We ought to think to push against what Satan is doing. And Peter tells us how to do that. He says, be sober-minded and be watchful and be firm in your faith. Sober-mindedness, this, is mean, this means think realistically. Remember the truth of who you are in Jesus. You're no longer slave to this world. Don't get caught up in the fog of the desires and the passions. Don't get drunk with the deceptive spells of the evil one as the world tries to lure you in. You must be watchful. You must be attentive. You must be actively on the lookout against sin outside and inside. Why? Because verse 8 says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When I was a kid, I was terrified of bees and wasps. I still am, but I used to be too. And all the adults said to me, if you don't bother the bees, they won't bother you. That is exactly not how Satan functions. He is not waiting for you to go poke his nest to start attacking. He is prowling around, seeking people to devour. He's hunting those whose guards are down. He hates you. He wants you to be damned alongside him under Jesus' administration of justice. But Peter says something earth-shattering. He says, resist, and he will flee. You think Satan's scared of you? Satan knows the power of Jesus in you. Peter is giving us reason not to be afraid of Satan. We certainly shouldn't underestimate him, but we should not live in fear of him. Specifically, Peter says, the way that you resist him is to be rooted in faith. To be grounded in your God 
I'll say this quote backwards. The best defense is a good offense. The best defense against Satan is an offense where you are rooted in God and where he is active in you. Live actively in your faith. He's your stronghold. He's your place of refuge. Dependence on God is your best resistance against the devil because he alone can conquer your adversary and he has conquered your adversary. And Satan knows it. He knows he has no claim over those who belong to Christ. Peter gives them a, a word of comfort. He says, these same things, these same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. If you're suffering for your faith, it feels lonely. You feel like you're the only one. And that's why the church is so important. That's why Peter's talking about the health of the church. But he also says, you also have brothers and sisters, not just locally, but across the globe who are a part of the church. You have this global brotherhood through the Spirit, and they share in your sufferings. You're not the only one struggling and remember, suffering is to be expected. It's not foreign. Be comforted. Be reassured. Because God has the final say. Look at what God's going to do in verses 10 and 11. After you have suffered a little while, think about the lives of the Christians in Asia Minor. Think about your own life. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you're rooted in Christ, you're rooted in an eternal guarantee of eternal victory because God himself is doing this. He himself will establish you. And who can undo that? You're no longer the foolish man who has built his house on the sand. You are the wise man whose house has been founded upon the rock. And when the storm comes, it will stand. In the day of judgment, you will be built upon God's own doing. The salvation he has won. The acts of Jesus Christ for you. And you will be complete, vindicated, strengthened, and established forever. When we think about these truths, what else is proper but praise? And so Peter just praises the Lord. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. As sojourners, here's how you resist the adversary. By trusting upon the one who himself will strengthen you. By trusting upon the one who himself will strengthen you. Lastly, sojourners, stand firm. Sojourners, stand firm. And what are we standing firm in? Peter says, the true grace of God. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Yes, God does the work, but he also commands us to stand firm in what God has done. This means that you must choose to resist the adversary. You must choose to run to your God out of the strength that he has given you by his spirit. You must resist the adversary's arrows and you must cling to the God of refuge and comfort. You pray as Jesus did. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So you cry out to God for help. That's how you stand firm, by crying out to the one who holds you up. It means that you look to the glory of Jesus alone. It means that you see him on the cross and know that your sins are paid for and you find comfort. It means that you admit your sin. 
and you admit your inability and your finitude and you plead Jesus alone for your case before God. Peter has talked about God's grace throughout his letter. And this is an old grace. A grace that is as old as God. It is eternal. It is one with his character. It's the blessing that Peter spoke in chapter 1, verse 2. In chapter 1, verse 10, it's, it's that ancient grace that the prophets spoke of. In chapter 1, verse 13, it's a grace that's yet to come. It's something anticipated when Jesus is revealed in all his glory. In chapter 2, verse 19, this, is, this grace is how God purifies and tests and proves the faith of his children. Chapter 3, verse 7, this is a grace that is shared by all people. A grace of life for husbands, wives, slaves, masters, etc. Eternal life, where all are equal under Christ. Chapter 4, it's a grace that gives gifts so that the believers can use them within the church for the edification of one another and the building up of the church by God's Spirit. And here, as we've just read, it is God's grace that He has called you to in Jesus, a grace that He will use to restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you in His eternal glory. This is the true grace of God. Yes, for you who are united to Jesus, even as you suffer now and even as you wait for that day of glory. Stand firm in it. Despite the suffering, despite Satan's attacks, who sent greetings? She who is at Babylon. The church in Rome is living under exile. We Christians are living under exile in this world. Stand firm in the grace of God, which results in, look at these very last words at the end of the book. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You can pray for world peace, but without Christ it will not come. This peace is us toward one another, and this peace is us toward God. We can have peace with God. He can draw near to us, and we can draw near to Him because of Jesus Christ. And we can serve one another with humility, and with mutual service, and submission, and with compassion under Jesus Christ. Stand firm in that, sojourners, in what God has done. Stand firm that no matter what the evil one throws, at your, throws your way, you have peace with God and no one can separate you from that love of God in Christ Jesus. Renew your faith in Jesus as you sojourn. Take hold of His blessed nearness by His Spirit as you suffer. Live on His strength and holiness when you feel weak. Wait for the day of glory when you feel defeated. Stand firm in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy God, we cannot do this on our own. So would you help us to see your grace upon grace, the blessing upon blessing that you have poured out in our lives by Jesus Christ, by your spirit, by your word, by the fellowship of believers. And as we come to taste and see the gospel in the Lord's Supper, would you strengthen us, continue to establish us? And as we are persecuted as we leave this place, would we see that it is your grace in purifying us and preparing us for that day of judgment when we will stand upon Jesus Christ alone. Give us faith in him this day and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.